Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Frequently on this podcast, we come back to questions around information, misinformation, and disinformation. In this age of digital communications, the metaphorical flora and fauna of the information ecosystem are closely studied by scientists from a range of disciplines. I'm joined today by one such scientist who uses observation and ethnography as his method, bringing a particularly sharp eye to the study of propaganda, media manipulation, and how those in power and those who seek power use such tactics. Samuel Woolley is the author of Manufacturing Consensus, Understanding Propaganda in the Age of Automation and Anonymity, just out this week from Yale University Press. He's also the author of The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth, co-author with Nick Monaco of a book on bots, and co-editor with Dr. Philip Howard of a book on computational propaganda. Here's Sam, who has been a member of the Tech Policy Press masthead, to tell us about his new book. My name is Samuel Woolley. I am an assistant professor in the School of Journalism and Media over at UT Austin, and I also direct the Propaganda Research Lab within the Center for Media Engagement. Um, And I am the author of the new book, Manufacturing Consensus, Propaganda in the Era of Automation and Anonymity. Sam, in the preface to this book, you say it is a book about people. Uh, It is about the people who make, build, and leverage technology and attempt to manipulate public opinion. It's about their particular uses of the curious and mutable tools and strategies that are constantly evolving out of the rich primordial ooze of the internet, bots, sock puppet accounts, influencers, astroturfing, and so on. How long have you been working on this book? And how would you describe the sort of methodology for it? I've been working on it for a long time. The, the story of this book goes back way back to 2013 when I started my PhD at the University of Washington. And at the time, I was working with a mentor named Phil Howard. Uh, we were working on this question related to computational propaganda. And we were thinking through the ways in which bots uh, and other, other means of creating false personas online, particularly on social media, were playing a role in politics. And so that was the where, where things started. It all started with bots and questions about bots. As time went by, I became more and more interested with the people who were actually building bots or creating sock puppet accounts, which is, you know, human run uh, fake accounts, or that were otherwise leveraging social media in order to try to exert some kind of power online. I was trained as an undergrad and, and master's student before I went to the PhD in anthropology and then cultural studies. So naturally, you know, I kind of wanted to do uh, ethnography, work with people, and then ask questions about power. And to me, there was a gap in our understanding of, of how different groups of people were using social media in attempts to get what they wanted, in attempts to normalize this novel technology for control. Um, it's a story as old as time, right? Like anytime a new technology gets released, uh, or at least a lot of the time when a new technology or new media, new form of media gets released, people discuss how it's so exciting and it's going to liberate everyone. And But then all of a sudden, there's oftentimes a move towards the co-option of that tool by the powerful, um, by governments, by militaries, by companies and corporations, 
um, and other folks that have more resources than the average person. And so that was the story I wanted to tell in this book as well, simultaneously as a story of, well, the internet's supposed to be a democratizing force. How has it democratized people's ability to try to spread their own forms of propaganda? And so that's another sub-discussion in the book. I want to talk a little bit about the kind of you know intellectual landscape you see yourself as uh, lodging this book in. In the opening, you talk quite a lot about names like Walter Lippmann, Edward Herman, Noam Chomsky, um, others that you sort of draw on, uh, Edward Bernays uh, even, and his sort of foundational work on propaganda. Um, how, where do you see this fitting intellectually? What do you see as the sort of contribution here to the lineage of those thinkers? Yeah, some big names there. Propaganda was integral to the early study of social science with folks like Lippmann and Bernays and, and later on Jacques and and Ehrman and Chomsky. And it, the study of propaganda kind of fell off after, uh, you know, around the 1980s, early 90s. There was still some work being done on it. Jout and O'Donnell have a, a quite a good book on this. But by and large, it lost, after World War II, it lost some of its luster as a field of study. And I think that's partially because of the way it was studied at the time. It was studied experimentally. Um, there was an attempt to recreate propaganda in a lab setting. Um and when I started studying the use of bots and other forms of manipulation on social media, I realized that there was a discussion that was happening about the co-option of social media, but it was ha- happening absent a, a theoretical framework. And to me, the work that had been done on propaganda was a very logical uh, scaffolding via which to work. And so I went back to some of the early writing by the folks that we've mentioned and, and was astounded by how much it resonated with a lot of what I was seeing online. So the folks that we were mentioning, especially the, the ones that were writing you know, in the 1910s and 20s and 30s, were talking about broadcast media and industrialization and the ways in which the newspaper and the television and the radio were, uh, the television came later, but the radio were a force for the purposes of propaganda, not just by governments, but also by corporate actors too. And I wanted to sort of talk about social media via those terms. Um, Herman and Chomsky were obviously a big, a big influence, uh, and they were in turn influenced by by Lippmann, who who actually was the one that, for all intents and purposes, came up with this concept of manufacturing consent or engineering of assent, um, as it's put by them and earlier even by Gramsci. And so I wanted to ask, well, what does this look like in the era of social media? Um, Herman and Chomsky wrote a book and redid their their book, Manufacturing Consensus, for a new version in the early 2000s, but that was just before social media really kicked off. And so I wanted to add to those conversations and, and pick those conversations up. I also, simultaneous to writing this book, there was a lot of conversations going on about disinformation and about misinformation. And for me, the really interesting question there was, was power and intent and who was behind all of this stuff. I wanted to look at production. And so, you know, political economy obviously comes into it as does, you know, a lot of the early critical cultural work that was done by some of the folks we mentioned, but also a number of other folks too. And so that's, that's really what, what, where, where this book comes in, you know, it's, it's, yes, it's speaking to the, the disinformation and, and influence operations oriented work that's happening now, but it's pointing out the fact that all of this work comes from a ver- very long lineage of work on the manipulation of public opinion and that we should, we should couch it as such. 
you think we're in many ways just sort of rediscovering those ideas right now that to some extent, as you say, there was a sort of, I guess, suppose long period in which uh, for whatever reason, uh, there, there wasn't as much of a focus on it. And perhaps, you know, now with land war in Europe and the rise of populists and, you know, kind of some of, in some ways, the same context that you saw at the early part of the 20th century, we're just sort of rediscovering some of those ideas. I think that's spot on. I think we are re- rediscovering some of these ideas. It's, and then the necessity of studying propaganda or whatever it, we've called it in times gone by has you know, come about at different times throughout history. The most recent sort of proximate time this happened was, yes, during World Wars I and II um, with a lot of the scholars that we talked about and then later during the Vietnam War. And so, yeah, like <laughs> there is a need to hearken back to these people and say, hey, listen, this is the ways in which it was studied then. Of course, like the paradigm that the people were speaking from, you know, was much more of a post-positivist kind of like hard science perspective, thinking through like how you would do experiments to show the effects of propaganda. And, and I take a much different approach. I'm much more interested in talking about this as a human-based phenomena, a sociological phenomena. But at the same time, like, yeah, we we must rely upon the work that's been done before rather than thinking that we are rediscovering or that we're discovering something new. We're not discovering something new. The manipulation of public opinion has happened for a very long time. We're talking about propaganda, but we're talking about propaganda being spread via new tools. And, and that is the crux of, of this book, right? It's it's a conversation about the ways in which these new tools allow for a different type of of propaganda, um, and also for a different level of amplifications and suppression of particular ideas. So you use this phrase, uh, computational propaganda, talk about automation, algorithms, partisan nano influencers, uh, and, you know, really kind of take us through how different types of groups have applied the ideas of computational propaganda. But let me just maybe take a step back. What do we know right now about the impact of, of political messaging or computational propaganda that, that has a kind of political purpose? Is this stuff effective? It seems like we get sort of mixed messages from the community of researchers mm-hmm. who look at these things. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees when you get into the research on this stuff. And it's important to understand that the researchers that we're talking about have different perspectives on epistemology, ontology, axiology, they're, they're coming at this philosophically from different perspectives and, and also from different fields of study and different paradigms. Within the social sciences, you know, you've got political scientists and uh, psychologists, for instance, who have, you know, been, been dominated by a post-positivist perspective on research that is in search oftentimes of effects and oftentimes using quantitative research to determine behavioral effects in human populations. You know, when it comes to propaganda and social media, it's very difficult to track a particular strand of propaganda across the internet and then determine effects on either an individual or a group level. And so in many ways, discussions about effects, and particularly effects of like the first order, like does propaganda or disinformation affect someone's vote or did it, did it elect a president or something like that? Those are really difficult questions to answer, but there are questions that people ask. I think that those are the wrong questions to be asking. I think that those questions are unanswerable in the age of social media because of the problems of automation and anonymity, particularly that last one, because of anonymity. You know, you're relying upon 
a, a system that uh, allows people to hide their tracks. It's a system where you can't really generalize a lot of the time because there's so many subgroups and, and websites uh, and, and then parts of websites that we're discussing. Um, and so I'm much more interested in, rather than trying to generalize, talking about impacts upon the impacts of propaganda and computational propaganda upon particular subgroups. So I try to focus more narrowly. And what I can say about that is that computational propaganda has absolutely had an impact upon people like journalists, particularly journalists that are working in uh, countries with limited media systems or autocracies. People in positions of power in countries like Turkey or countries like Libya or Myanmar have been able to leverage bots, but also groups of coordinated folks, sock puppet armies, to target people with whom they disagree and attack them to the extent that those journalists or human rights advocates or activists either leave the website or they have mental health issues or they sometimes also simultaneously experience offline harm related to the online harm they've experienced, whether it's it's self-harm or whether it's it's actual harm from the governments or power operators that are in question. Simultaneously, a big part of my research right now is looking into the communities of color and diaspora communities, um, both in the United States, but also around the world, and the ways in which they're oftentimes unduly affected by computational propaganda. Unsurprisingly, maybe it's often the most marginalized groups in our community who are tamped down by these kinds of mechanisms. They are targeted and their voices are taken away. Circling back to the original question, what's the impact of computational propaganda? I think if we think in really broad general terms, it's always going to be hard to talk about impact and people think they have some kind of trump card when they, when they bring that up. But what I say to them is, you know, if you fo start focusing on subgroups or subcommunities or, or, you know, specific spaces online, you're going to find an impact right away. You say um, to understand political influence in a digital world, we can't focus on tracking pure, empirically evidenced behavioral outcomes, direct notions of change as defined by traditional political science or psychology. You point to folks like Kate Starbird, who, you know, suggests we should look at the sort of second order changes, the kind of network cascades, the, I guess, micro movements of people uh, and groups in a more kind of, I guess, systematic way? Yeah, Kate's work, Kate Starbird's work has been really influential on my work. Um, Kate was a was an assistant professor when I was at University of Washington. And, and I remember her work on rumors back then was, I found it really, really interesting. And it's only gotten more nuanced over time. This, these ideas that, that Kate's talked about, and she and I have had conversations about together, about second order effects or third order effects uh, are really, really important. How does computational propaganda or the use of bots and other you know, algorithmically or automated technology online, how does it benefit particular groups? How does it benefit extremists? How does it benefit folks that are trying to uh, troll uh, a group of journalists? How does it benefit someone that's trying to game a online survey or an online poll? And if you look to those spaces, you're much more able to discern effect than you are if you're like a political scientist trying to find out whether or not Russian propaganda um, online changed the outcome of the election. I want to make sure that the listener understands uh, kind of how you went about this book. You know, you say mm -hmm. that you spoke to a variety of people and political groups in North America, Europe, North Africa, the Middle East. These are, you know, bot makers, uh, people doing 
PR, dark PR on some level, uh, folks who are working for politicians and autocrats. Why in the world did these people talk to you, Sam? (laughs) Yeah, um, it took a long time to get them to talk to me. A lot of in the beginning, they didn't want to. And you have to understand that I began this work prior to 2016 when the cat kind of came out of the bag with Cambridge Analytica and the United States and Russian interference in the U.S. election and Russian interference during Brexit. Um, And so I was able to plant some seeds early on with these communities um, in order to talk to them about their practices, leveraging bots online to try to manipulate public opinion because they were really proud of their work then. They, they thought that what they were doing was novel. They thought they were kind of winning on this system. You know, they were gaming the system. And, and so they wanted to discuss it. Later on, once people became more savvy to what was happening online and, and the fact that there was various groups online trying to push conversations one way or another, it became more difficult. But the way that I got them to talk to me later was by finding ex-employees of companies. Uh, I used LinkedIn a lot to to find people who had previously worked on particular political campaigns. Um, I talked to folks who were in prison um, for for doing the kinds of things that we're talking about. I talked to folks who, who had previously worked for social media companies who wanted to we're having a bit of a via culpa moment who wanted to talk about what had happened. Granted, like, you know, all of these sources of data have their own drawbacks. Part of the work that I was doing with this book was having to separate the wheat from the chaff and separate people's biases from, from what actually happened, which is always part of qualitative work. But I think they wanted to talk to me because by and large, they felt that on the one hand, they felt that either politically they were correct in doing what they were doing, that what they were doing was politically correct, because oftentimes it wasn't, but they believed in what they were doing. So take, for instance, like BJP, IT Yoda's working on behalf of the Modi regime, you know, they, they believed in it. And, and so they believed what they did was helping their party or their candidate or their political system. Um, on the other hand, folks were able to make a lot of money doing this. And so they were proud of the fact that they'd become rich off of this or that they had they had figured out how to monetize this in such a way that they were able to, to have success online. And so there was a lot of arrogance amongst the people that I talked to, a lot of bragging. And the thing about qualitative work of this kind is once you get someone talking, they almost forget they're talking to a researcher. They forget that they're talking to someone who wants to understand this stuff because of an interest in power and politics. And so um, it snowballed from, from something that was really small in the beginning to, to now having a, a list of people that, that I can call at any given moment that I think you know will, are very likely to talk to me, including here in the United States. I was struck by the fact that you, know, you open chapter two in India and you focus specifically on the kind of massive operation in favor of uh, Narendra Modi's, you know, campaign. What do you think about India in particular? What what does that particular kind of environment tell us about these issues? India is a fascinating case study for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, on the one hand, it's what's happening in India with the, the populism there and and sort of the you might call it religious extremism there is in parallel with what we're seeing in other areas in the world including some of what we've seen in the United States and places like Brazil uh and Turkey on the other hand the playing field for where propaganda is happening is pretty different than it is in a lot of other countries or at least 
what I mean by that is that a lot of the conversations that are happening and a lot of the propaganda that's being spread are being spread over WhatsApp rather than on Facebook or, or Twitter. It's not to say that Facebook, Twitter, and the other major platforms don't have a role. They certainly do. It's just that Modi and the BJP uh, and the, the thousands of people that they have working for them to create content uh, on WhatsApp have been have have perfected a system over a closed a closed network messaging app, uh, an encrypted messaging app, and and so I found that really fascinating from from the get go. It was also really interesting to talk to these people because a lot of them were at a lower level. I mentioned IT Yodas. Yoda means sans, uh, warrior in Sanskrit or combatant in Sanskrit. And these are people who are volunteering a lot of times for, for the BJP to use hundreds of different cell phones. They, they have what you call racked cell phones to spread messages across WhatsApp groups, not using forwarding, but because they're actually members of those groups. So that that's actually another point about India that's really fascinating, which is that the BJP started building infrastructure to spread its propaganda well before WhatsApp made decisions about that they thought would limit the spread of disinformation and manipulation on their platform, i.e. limiting the amount of time someone could forward a given message from group to group. The respondents, the interviewees that, that we spoke to at my, at my lab said actually that, that a lot of the limitations that WhatsApp put upon its platform benefited the BJP because the BJP had already built capacity across what they say are millions of groups on WhatsApp. So they don't need to forward. They actually have people working within all of those groups. And so any new political party or someone that's trying to challenge them has a really, really difficult time because they can't use particular kinds of amplification to get to where they need to be. That's a fascinating idea that there's a kind of first mover advantage and you know, almost a kind of lock-in effect that yeah. is at play there. Like um, they're like we've been grandfathered in, basically, as as the propagandists who can run this system. I want to talk about the three levels of manufacturing consensus. Um, you talk about how these various techniques and ideas are interconnected. You say at the center of the circle are computational automated tools made available by the rise of social media and the social shift towards digitalism. Um, mm-hmm. So we've got three types, political bots, sock puppets, partisan, nano-influencer-based efforts. We've got social media, algorithm, recommendation, and trend-based efforts. And we've got news media-based efforts. Can you talk a little bit about this framework? You know, going back to the early days of this work in 2013, 14, 15, we were studying what was basically rampant use of bots for the spreading of political content, but also commercial content online. Um, it still happens today. It's still a huge point of discussion. Uh, you'll see Elon Musk discussing it nearly you know, every other day, it seems like, um, the use of spam bots and crypto bots and stuff like that. But in the early days, there was basically an anything goes perspective across most of the platforms for the use of bots. They might have had uh, limitations in their terms of service about bot usage, but their 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 actions in terms of deleting bots were kind of low. Uh, it wasn't until later that they they got more serious on that front. And so what bots allowed people to do was create the illusion of popularity for a movement. So a really great early example of this was during the Scott Brown runoff election uh, in Massachusetts. And a group of Tea Party activists at that time built, you know, several hundred bot campaigns that were that were built specifically to target his opponent, uh, Martha Coakley. 
what they levied against her was allegations that she was anti-Catholic. And so they're able to make it look like suddenly hundreds of people online were saying that Coakley was anti-Catholic in an election in Massachusetts, which is a pretty damning accusation. Later on, what happened was, was regular people started picking this up. Other kinds of folks online, including influencers, started kind of talking about this. And then also newspapers started writing about it. So you kind of start to see how this happens at multiple levels. Over the course of time, bots began to be deleted in higher rates. They're still online. They still play a crucial role in the spread of propaganda, but sock puppets stayed true. You know, these are human run accounts. They're harder to delete. They're harder to suss out uh, whether or not they're they're human. Um, and so there's questions about free speech there. And so sock puppets kept getting used. Sock puppets still get used today to a big degree to organize groups of, of humans working to do the same thing as bots were doing, but just on a smaller scale. And in both of these circumstances with bots and sock puppets, a lot of the time they weren't trying to actually change the opinions of people by like engaging in arguments with folks. They were trying to change what the algorithms on the sites were recommending or saying were tr was trending. So there was a conversation that was going on, not between the bots or the sock puppets and people oftentimes, but between the bots and the sock puppets and the algorithms behind sites like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, in order to try to, again, manufacture consensus, create the illusion of popularity for particular ideas. Uh, one of the examples I always give is the day of the Parkland shooting in Florida, bots and sock puppets converged around the hashtag around a hashtag that alleged that David Hogg and his his fellows were crisis actors. And later on that day, that was the number one trending um, hashtag on YouTube's homepage, which is a great example of the ways in which these kinds of folks understood that if you leverage these tools, you could game the system in your own favor. But the crucial next step is that then journalists would pick up these stories in oftentimes in well-meaning ways. Sometimes they knew that it was gamed, but oftentimes in well-meaning ways, spread them as if they were truth. And so that, that story about David Hogg being a crisis actor suddenly got reported on by multiple different outlets because they were looking to social media trends as a mechanism for their reporting. The other thing that I haven't mentioned, which, which you asked about, is, is these partisan nano-influencers. And I see the use of nano-influencers as a logical next step in the kind of computational propaganda framework. Bots were really useful at bluntly amplifying particular streams of content early on, along with sock puppets. Um, sock puppets just didn't allow for the same sort of reach. Partisan nano-influencers, people with under 10,000 or so followers, but that have a very specific following, and so they have a little bit more psychological impact. Now what we're seeing is that political campaigns are paying these small-scale users to spread particular streams of content in very overtly coordinated ways. Like they'll give them particular scripts to talk on. They'll give them particular hashtags to talk about. And so they're gaming the system, but through a different mechanism. That mechanism is really interesting because it is really difficult to moderate and to, to create policy around. What does it look like to tell influencers they can't say specific things? How do we limit them? Um, if they're being paid by a campaign, are they being transparent about being paid by a campaign? What if they're not being paid by a campaign and they're just doing this because it gets them more likes and more engagement? Um, so now we're in this, this brave new world in which I think influencers are going to play a really big role in the spread of propaganda if, if we don't do something pretty quick. So I want to come back to the role of the social media platforms, the technology firms themselves. But since you've focused a little bit in those last comments on the role of journalists, I want to kind of go there first. 
you say the fact is journalists play a very real role in perpetuating manufactured consensus, not always, not even usually done consciously. And sometimes it happens, you know, outside of the the realm of, of the work of any individual reporter. How do you see the kind of world of journalism, as it were, in its own crisis, I suppose, interacting with computational propaganda and the broader idea here of manufactured consensus? If there's anywhere in the book that I draw the most from Herman and Chomsky, it's, it's this chapter on journalists and journalism and, and the institution of newsmaking. Broadly speaking, the argument that I'm making is that social media have caused massive changes in the world of journalism. No one's going to be surprised by that in the creation of the news. Journalists have to do their jobs differently now. News entities are massively challenged by, uh, by social media, which are also monetized via advertising and thus, you know, in many ways, competitors of news organizations. News organizations have also had to change the way they write headlines, the way they write stories, the way they appeal to people because of the fact that most people access most of their information online these days, either via Google, via Facebook, via Twitter. And so there's this push and pull going on between social media and news. And the news industry tends to get the short end of the stick. I'm not saying people should necessarily feel sorry for the news industry. You know, like the news industry has had a lot of power over the course of the last hundred years. But I do think people should feel sorry for the journalists that are in the crosshairs of this stuff. Journalists are oftentimes working on very tight deadlines. They're working to get more clicks on their stories than their competitors. They're working to get their stuff noticed. And they're also leveraging new tools to find stories. And so, you know, you see the rise of computational journalism or data journalism, uh, where people are basically counting things online in order to tell particular stories. And there's some really good examples of this work being done critically, fantastically, speaking truth to power. But there's a lot of examples of this kind of work being done in such a way that it actually perpetuates the exact same kinds of gaming of social media systems that we see happening via bots, via influencers, and those sorts of things. So sloppy journalism that, say, for instance, quotes tweets uh, and puts tweet embeds tweets in the story and doesn't do any work to verify whether or not those accounts are real is a great example of a very facile way that journalism, you know, early on perpetuated these kinds of problems. To this day, there's still well-respected news entities that embed tweets from random profiles in their stories as if that's exemplary or the same somehow as going to a real source and knowing who they are and talking to them. On a broader scale, trends and recommendation algorithms have impacted the way that news stories get told. And, and in many ways, journalists hop onto stories oftentimes because there's traffic surrounding a particular topic online. But what we know about online, what I learned about the online sphere in this book and over the course of the last you know, nearly decade of research is that it's pretty easy to manufacture stories and trends online with the intention of not just getting it to spread via the algorithm and then across the internet, but also to dupe journalists and newsmakers into spreading that content and giving it, legitimizing it through mainstream media, quote unquote. By no means do I want to attack the press. I think that journalists do such important work in our society that I know so many fantastic people that work in, in the news. But I do think that it's it's cause for a renewed sense of care and a renewed sense of ethics in journalism. I think that it's it's you know cause for some deep navel gazing about you know what role social media play 
in journalists uh, telling the stories that they want to tell. And I think that it is cause for journalists needing to have a very critical eye when they look to social media as a, as a source for either information or, or stories or what have you. Let's step back for a second and just talk about the nature of these, you know, Skinner boxes, these big social media platforms um, and the makers of those. You talked to one former employee uh, to, to some extent, doesn't sound terribly different from other whistleblowers or disaffected former social media employees that we hear from, it seems like uh, in an ever increasing drumbeat these days, Um, but just real concern about the incentives and the profit motives and the scale um, and in general, a kind of almost pessimism that they'll ever do anything to, to really address the game mechanics at play here. Ah, if I had a dollar for every conversation I'd had with a, a, a current or former social media employee that took this perspective, you know, the perspective that's been exemplified by some of the whistleblowers, but also just, you know, by other folks that have talked to journalists over the course of time, I'd be a rich person. From a, the perspective of most employees at these companies, they're kind of working on runaway trains. I, I've, I've heard so many metaphors used by the, the employees themselves. The other metaphor that I used to hear used a lot was... It's like we're working on the plane uh, while the plane's already being flown or whatever it is, you know, like we're trying to build the plane while the plane's being flown. But the perspective by and large amongst a lot of folks that I talked to from these companies was, yeah, like, you know, we created these systems. It was, you know, a move fast and break things mentality. That was literally the motto at Facebook. Uh, Let's see what we can do. There wasn't a lot of thought about consequences. There wasn't a lot of thought about whether or not we would regret the things we were building. The the goal was just to build and see what happened. Uh, and therefore, it's really no surprise that we ended up where we did because these informational systems are just that. They're systems where people go to get their, their news. They're systems where people go to learn about the world for better or worse. You know, Even if people disagree with that and say, well, who gets their news from social media? You need do no more than turn to to Pew and look at some of the statistics on on the fact that people get a huge proportion of their news information from these websites now. The profit motivation of these of these organizations, particularly Facebook and YouTube and and those like them, is you know driven by advertising. Uh, one of the things that I learned through this research is that there's also the usage of bots in a big way to drive up ad numbers and, and to drive up clicks and views on ads. And so it kind of undermines the bottom line in a big way. But once they got into it and once they grew, once they started growing at the clip they they did, it was almost too late to go back. And, you know, people like Mike Anony, who's a professor at, at uh, USC, a very, very brilliant guy, have said he said something which I think is really germane to this conversation, which is, should we feel sorry for the social media companies because they grew so fast, because they have billions of users and now they have a hard time moderating the content and they feel like they can't do anything to solve the problem? And for him, the answer is no. And for me, the answer is no as well. Like they grew at the rate that they grew. They made decisions that they made. They either willfully ignored or, or were just oblivious to the problems that existed or knew and went ahead anyway. Now we are where we are today. Uh, and that's, so that's the story that gets told by this one particular person, but has also been told to me by a number of other folks as well. Towards the end of the book, uh, you talk about the idea of you know, what's next for ethnography and for this kind of research approach. You talk about um, an ethnography of information and the idea of spending time with non-human or semi-human actors. So actually immersing yourself 
in this world of bots and what looks like human behavior. Um, and I was struck, you know, by the idea that this is a book that's come out right at uh, this moment of hype around generative AI and chat GPT and these types of large language models that appear to be, uh, if not passing the Turing test, certainly fooling a lot of folks. What do you make of that? How do you think you'll be able to do ethnography in online spaces in the future when perhaps some of those actors are in fact AIs? It's a great question. And so this book always, you know, goes back to, to my fascination with bots. And um, in fact, last year with Nick Monaco over at Microsoft, I had a book called Bots that came out that we co-authored. And so it's near and dear to my heart. I think that the internet has always been a place where of hybrid identities. I think that automation has always played a role online. Um, there's always been fairly sophisticated, if you want to call it that, chatbots that have existed back to Eliza and, and others like, like her. ChatGPT, in many ways, was not a surprising thing to me when it happened. It was something that I knew had been going on in Silicon Valley and elsewhere for, for a while, the creation of these kinds of, of very much smart machine learning bots. I think that it's crucial that listeners understand that Bots are always, at their essence, created by people. They always have parts of the people who make them inside of them. They are a human creation. They, they tend to look a lot more like C-3PO than they do like R2-D2, in the words of one person I spoke to for my book, um, who knows bots very well. And so we oftentimes build them in our own image. And because of that, I think that it's really important to study them as actors in systems that are human systems or social systems. Um, sometimes bots get away from their makers. Sometimes bots do things that are unexpected. And I think those are delightful, worrying, scary uh, times that are very worthy of our study. But I do think that researchers have to start asking themselves crucial questions, not just about studying the content that bots produce, but studying the bots themselves, studying the creators of those bots, studying the motivations for building the bots, all sorts of things like that, because in the production of these things lies a, lies a power dynamic and lies a story. And that story has got to be told. People like Kate Crawford uh, and Dana Boyd and you know Nancy Bame and uh, Tarleton Gillespie and the folks at Microsoft Social Media Collective have done amazing work to talk about social sociality of technology, the role that society that technology plays in our society, and and how technology can be drive a driver of sociality of of social interaction of power. And so that's what I'm calling for at the end of the book. I'm saying, hey, listen. You know, it's great to talk to the producers of bots, but also we can do ethnography of bots themselves. We can spend time with them. You can even build bots and interact with other bots and study that too. And so why don't we do that? Last question for you. You know, we're seeing a kind of, I guess, politicization of even the study of disinformation or the mm -hmm. study of issues like the ones that you address here in your book with various academics kind of, you know, under scrutiny or you know, being FOIA'd in, in state schools like the one perhaps that you work at, the study itself is is kind of in the crosshairs of disinformation artists on some level and those who may legitimately have political qualms with some of the outcomes um, mm -hmm. of studying these issues. What do you make of that? How does that affect your work? You know, how does it affect your thinking? It's not surprising to me. This work is inherently political. You know, we're studying the use of social media in these cases as a mechanism for control. And so, you know, 
it's important work. It's work that shines a spotlight on some really bad practices that have allowed some people to have an edge for quite a long time. And so it's unsurprising to me that some of the people that had that edge are lashing out and trying to uh, push back. At the same time, um, as someone who, you know, specifically tries to focus on the study of propaganda, given its lineage and, and the perspectives on it, rather than just disinformation, I understand some of the qualms that people have about the indexing of information or claims about what is good quality information versus bad quality information. And I think at the heart of this is a, is a tension between free speech and between privacy and safety and authenticity online. Uh, and offline as well. And I think that in the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of push and pull between these issues. I think that policies will have to take into consideration all of the issues. I don't think that research that works to index news sites and say, this news site's a good one, this news site's a bad one, can can ever escape you know, bias. I, if you read this book, you'll, you'll see that I, I completely acknowledge the fact that researchers have a lot of bias, but that doesn't mean that there's not value in this work. It doesn't mean that there's not, you know, a huge amount of work to still be done. Um, I don't think that we can let ourselves be stopped, but I do think that we have to be careful in what kind of claims that we make with the work that we do. And I think that we have to work to build technological systems that are democratic in nature, that are motivated by human rights. And if we do that, rather than build systems that only only push forward the motivations of the powerful, then you know we'll we'll be in a better circumstance if we're able to build technology for truly for democracy and human rights. And, and so I think that's what a lot of the researchers are asking for. I do think that the hype around disinformation research uh, you know, has been a little bit overblown. At the same time, there's a reason why people have focused on it, and it's because it is a massive, massive problem around the world. Well, the book's called Manufacturing Consensus, Understanding Propaganda in the Era of Automation and Anonymity. Sam Woolley, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Justin. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.